Hi, welcome to the Whole Therapist Podcast. We're leaving out the theorizing and exploring this strange phenomenon of being a human and a therapist. I'm Kelly, licensed marriage and family therapist, working in private practice settings as a clinician and a clinical supervisor in the Denver metro area. And I'm Abby. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the owner of a group practice in the Denver metro area. Kelly and I are both registered play therapists, supervisors, and EMDR certified. So we're both therapists, but this is not therapy. And we're both supervisors, but this is not supervision. This podcast is purely for fun. So for any ethical concerns on your caseload, please refer to your state laws and licensing boards. And please remember to follow The Whole Therapist on Instagram, Facebook, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening station. For more resources, blogs, and consultation opportunities, visit wholetherapistinstitute.com. So come join our conversation while we explore the embodied experience of neuroscience and authenticity in the therapy room. Hi, welcome to The Whole Therapist Podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Abby. We're excited to have you with us today. Our microphones are on. We <laughs> take two. Yeah. We did the introduction and <laughs> the microphones went on. You know, it reminds me of um, when you get on Zoom, you're like, oh, I think you're muted. And people are like, how long have we been doing this? And we still have to be told. It's just really anticlimactic. Like, yeah. we're here. Oh, wait, hold on. We're not here. We're <laughs> muted. The microphone's off. Yeah. 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 Uh, today we want to talk to you all about not taking it personally, or how do we know when we're taking it personally in the therapy space? It's making me think of like the, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. Kind of like, and how annoying that phrase can be. Yes. But if a client could tell us that, right, right, right. It's not you, it's me. Uh, Um, more than likely that is actually what's happening. Or is it like, it's, it's all like us taking it personal is about us, not about the client. Mm. So it's like, it is you actually. Yeah. When we're taking it personally, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think the first step is maybe when a client is saying something or a behavior is happening, it's not you. Yeah. But if we step into taking it personally. That's all you. We're going to talk about it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was telling Abby before we started recording that. I can't like pinpoint the shift for me, but if years and years of taking things personally. Yeah. Um, I don't know when the shift was. I think in the last year I've just noticed that I'm like, why, why do people take things so personally from clients or um, why are we getting into power struggles? Mm -hmm. And so knowing that in the last gosh, almost three years now of diving into the framework of IPMB, I think it's just that I solidly hold that framework inside. And so it helps me see um, when people are a behavior that is maybe showing up for them or in a way that they're talking. Yeah. Um, it All it is is more information for me. And there's such suffering. Yeah. You know, typically if I'm working with a consultee or supervisee, noticing their suffering is a good cue of you know, gosh, they're take it's it's meaning something about them. They're taking it very personal, mm-hmm. which from an IPNB lens, the data which we'll get into says it's so not about us, right? And also says we will feel that it's about us. 
Yeah, Lisa Dion uses um, the framework from IPMB and Mm -hmm. um, describes it as the setup or the offering, which I think can be super helpful when you're working with kids and parents, because uh, maybe, Abby, you can speak to this, but at least I tell a lot of parents based on my experience of working with them that many parents take these behaviors personally. Yeah. And if we can just take a step back and say, well, what if this kid was actually just offering you what it's like to be them? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually has nothing to do with you. It's just that I don't feel good enough. And so I'm going to offer this feeling to you. And the work that we have to do as therapists is noticing that it's not that I'm not good enough. It's that this client is offering, um, in a really sensory rich way to help me understand that they don't feel good enough. Yeah. That's such a good way to put it. A sensory rich offering. Cause it's all that implicit. It's not like clients go in and say, I'm going to make you feel into what it's like to be me, right? <laughs> but like, but that's what they do yeah. um, with all those, what is it, billions or millions of bits of data, mm-hmm. lots of data. Yeah, I'm actually starting to get curious right now as we're talking, when you said it's not like a client's going to come in and tell you that, but if a client comes in and they're pretty left brain, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe they are coming in and saying, I don't think I've made any progress. Um, I think I'm regressing. And if you start noticing that you're moving into, I'm incompetent, I'm not a good therapist. If you move into that, would you say that your right brain has been touched? Because if they're telling you that at a left brain level, I think logically you would know if you were in your left brain, that has nothing to do with you. Maybe. I don't know. I hear you. Yeah. Trying to make, make meaning of, um, our default mode network is working in this very moment, right? <laughs> Trying to make meaning of like, wait, what's happening? The neurobiology of it. Um, so we can fumble our way. We're not Cozzolino, but I would think so. Yeah. So if our, if we're, it's both like if something's awakened in us, that doesn't feel so good. Then if I can't stay with that, I'm going to go left mm-hmm. brain. And then I might get into cahoots of like giving a strategy mm-hmm. to the client. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to sit with the feeling of what it's like for them to be incompetent if that's what they're experiencing and my belly's aching or something, mm-hmm. um, I think. So the question I think I was trying to come to is, is that how you would know? If a client comes in left mm-hmm. brain mm-hmm. and then you're aware that your right brain has been awakened because you get all these images and thoughts, yeah. you have an opportunity to make a choice there. Yeah, I think that Robin talks about like you can just like move down the shame spiral, which right. isn't going to help anybody, and you're even less present. Or it's like, oh, my right brain is activated, meaning that something this client is saying um, has awakened something in me. Yeah, would that be where you do your own regulation? I think so. To continue to parse out, yeah, like what's mine and what's theirs, and as the clinician, I might be thinking like, where am I right now? Mm. Is kind of how I orient. I start to feel like pulled into the client's energy or pulling away from them, depending on what's happening. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk in a little bit here about some strategies um, that Bonnie Badenoch offers with her inner community model. Mm-hmm. But I love that, that that would be a good, a good sign that we're being pulled into something or something's awakened is if we go left. I have a supervisee. I don't know where she got this from, or maybe she made it up. She's just fantastic. But she was talking about how sometimes when that shows up for her and she feels almost as if she's like her and the client are the same people in the room, Mm. she will in her mind go, 
they're wearing a red shirt. I'm wearing a blue shirt. Yeah. They've got tennis shoes. I have um, sandals on. Mm -hmm. She's like, it's just like very concrete and reminds me that like we're separate people. Yeah. And and I really like that. I mean, that's a quick strategy to go to. Yeah. Um, I think there are other strategies too, but I think that certainly helps remind us like this experience that this client is describing. Even if you have something similar, it's not the same. Yeah. And there's just so much room for compassion around why it gets murky mm-hmm. when we think of the brain and what, how Cozzolino talks about. It's the same areas of the brain that differentiate self and other. And I think he said in his neuroscience of psychotherapy, it's two weeks old to seven years old is when we really develop that sense of other mm. is at seven. So if we have some attachment wounding, which most people do have in our society yes. between that age frame, it's just going to be murky when things are awakened in us. Like, Oh, did I join with my, am I too enmeshed or joined with my client now? Um, am I so separate? Am I so separate? I can't join in at all to resonate. Yeah, it makes me think about what Cozzolino's talked about in this, the development of a therapist, that the amygdala was the first right. to be developed, right? So that's always going to be like the base of everything we go back to. So what you're talking about is almost similar. If this started at, what'd you say, two weeks? That's what he said, although it is a statistic from like 15 years ago, so I'm not sure. But he, yeah, he talked about how... The default mode network has been detected as early as two weeks after birth, but it only forms into a coherent network around age seven. This is the time that kids develop that sense of separateness from those around them. This is when we talk about empathy too. You know, parents will come in and be like, my kid isn't remorseful, but their kid is three. Mm. Like they don't actually have the capacity for deep empathy until seven. Yes. Mm -hmm. But just like the amygdala is our base, if this starts at two weeks and at 15 years ago, we probably now know it's actually earlier. For sure, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. We will always go back to what was our earliest ways of adapting and understanding the world. Yeah. So it makes sense then that it's really easy actually in the therapeutic space to take it personally. Well, totally. And he, he says that in both books. My dream would be if Cozzolino could ever be on this podcast. We're horrible interviewers, but we would work on it to welcome him if you're listening Lou yeah which we know he's not but we do love his work I know but um it says where is it he and he talks about in in his writing and validates what you're saying Kelly just about how our capacity to sense others consciousness came before self-consciousness and self-awareness so it's going to always be easier to fall into being more aware of someone else and joining in with that linkage than it would be for separateness, right? I wonder if that also comes from like social baseline theory. Right, yes. We we have to be aware of somebody else because we're Mm -hmm. so dependent on survival of somebody else when we're first born. So there's room for compassion. And if you're taking everything personally, you will be suffering as a therapist. So I think that's kind of our heart in this episode is we see your suffering. We know that suffering. Um, can we make some space to explore it from a curious perspective? Like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, because the data is, is that 90% of the information you're taking in is information you already have. So if Kelly's telling me a new fact about sea otters, hmm. um, only 10% of that is going to actually feel new. And the rest of my brain is going to make up for the 90%. 
Um, so 10% in the therapy room is actually coming from you. It's really about the client yes. when you're interacting with them. Yeah. I wondered if we can even talk about some of the things that we've heard and, and our own examples of when folks are taking things personally. Yeah. Yep. A couple of things I think about are maybe folks being like, I'm feeling really insecure this week because everyone's canceling on me. Mm-hmm. Um, or this client shows up and they're just like angry at me every week. Yeah. There's something around the narratives that we're connecting to everyone canceling. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I must be a bad therapist mm-hmm. and we can make space for it. There could be something going on mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. It's probably nothing about you. Right. Mm-hmm. The, this mom or dad won't come in and check in with me. Yeah. Kelly and I were talking about the power struggles that can come up with clients. Um, or I also think about a therapist that begins to fawn, be like overly agreeable to a client. Um, those would also be good signs that you're taking this really personal if you're arguing with someone, yeah, I mean, I know <laughs> we're I, both rolling our eyes like, <sighs> I, I, I can dig up an example. I know I've gotten in power struggles before. Yeah. Again, I just don't know where the shift when the power struggles stop, but it is, it's so hard to understand it now. And I don't know if this is the right way to think about it. I just think about customer service <laughs> and even outside of therapy. Like I cannot handle when I'm calling and at like a customer service place and they're getting in a power struggle with me. Mm. I, I'm just like, I just meet my needs. I just want my needs met. Yeah. Um, and that's what clients are doing. They're coming here and they're trying to get their needs met. And I just think that's our job, mm. right? Like that's how good relationships are formed or when needs are met and we know how important our relationship is. Um, and if a power struggle happens, that's just a cue for us. We're just out of attunement. We're not in tune. And then there's been a rupture. Yeah. I feel like there's a, it could be a whole episode on power struggles. That is so so much to it. Yeah. And then that it's not ever too late. So if you find yourself in that power struggle, typically it's like we're arguing or it starts to feel combative and there's not that connection, Mm -hmm. um, with the client, it's never too late to say, I just want to slow it down. I'm, I'm noticing this, this energy feels different or something. Yeah. Like I don't, I think I work with a couple people who it feels like a snowball, like here's our momentum and here's where it's going. And, mm-hmm. um, supervisees, I'm thinking about how it's just not too late to ever bring awareness to the energy of what's happening. Yeah. Even to say, this is feeling like a power struggle. That's my error. Mm. Please let me take a moment to slow down. Right. Cause they are coming to meet their needs. Um, we're making it about us if we're engaging in a power struggle Yes, about my need as a therapist, right. which is incorrect. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I'm thinking about um, times where I've sat an email back and forth to the client too long. Yes. Right, though, that ends <laughs> up in a power struggle for sure. It's just like get out of email and pick up the phone. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Mm. And I will say in my experience, I think most of my power struggles end up being with parents of children that I'm working with. That can be, I've had power struggles. We've, we've talked about this in another episode, power struggles around medication. Yeah. Right. Um, I've had power struggles around scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I find that I, that will happen often with fathers, I think, 
when I'm trying to set like a limit or, I mean, I'm thinking about some really high conflict cases where you have very activated parents and, and as a therapist, you have to set really strong boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, that can dip in, I mean, the difference between a power struggle and just a firm, kind boundary. Um, I can think of one father that I definitely had this like fawning response to. Part of it was I didn't feel emotionally safe. He was yelling, but I can look back and think I was taking it very personal. It felt like, oh, he's attacking me as a clinician. Let me just be and do whatever I need to do for him to stop kind of yelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt different than the de-escalation strategies that we've all been trained in. It felt much more like I need I need to be out of this conflict because it says something negative about me mm-hmm. as a clinician mm-hmm. to be in conflict or for him to be angry with me um, when the truth is it was not about me at all. Yeah. His anger had nothing to do with me, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting now that you say that. I had an adult client I was working with in substance abuse, and I, the first time I met with them, uh, they were just screaming. Yeah. And and I don't even know if they were screaming at me, but they were just screaming. Yeah. And I remember knowing I'm scared. Yeah. And, I mean, that was so many years ago, and it's not until now that I know Oh, I had that freeze response. And I believed I was de-escalating by just sitting there <laughs> saying nothing, Aww. nodding my head. Right. But again, similar to what Lisa Dion talks about that she gets from this IPMB framework is that if we are not matching escalation, yeah. she says, you know, kids will continue to amp up until we meet them. Anybody will. Anybody's going to continue to amp it up until we match them. Yeah. It's so true. I think back of all the different things I could have said, matching that intensity with this father, for example, but in a regulated way, but that he would know that I'm right here with him and I see and hear and feel his anger. Mm -hmm. Um, And you cannot come in my office and speak this way when it's unsafe, right? So there was a boundary that was missed, Mm -hmm. but we take it so personal, like my own relationship with anger and with fathers and all those things like come up and it felt very personal. And I think there's lots of room for grace around that. Yeah. I think that that shows up for me with kids and moms. And when I, when I perceive that a parent isn't being attuned enough, um, I get this like angry feeling inside and I have to be very careful because I can get into a power struggle. And I would say more than that, if you're getting into a power struggle with client, you probably at some point have shamed the client. Yes, absolutely. And you get to repair that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of this conversation, we can move up a bit into that left hemisphere space around strategies. For those of you listening, if you were if you were here with us, we'd do a sand trail together. Hmm. Um, but you're not. So we're going to give you some... Some of Bonnie's work, um, her inner community model is fantastic. Um, and she talks about it in both of her books and her workbook. And um, essentially, from a parts work perspective, um, clients are always going to awaken things in us. That's really healthy and normal. It means that you're human. But we can parse out, am I awakened or am I enmeshed with the client, right, from a part so with, with this father, I can think very clearly it was my inner mother who came up who would fawn um, and who would just be really agreeable and, and quite submissive mm-hmm. and kind of self-abandoned, dissociate a bit that came up in me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels very personal. And instead of 
I didn't have the tools within myself years ago at that time to have been able to take a breath and feel into like, oh, okay, mom, like you're right here. Let's drink some water. Mm-hmm. Or like, I've got this. I see you, you know, and and begin to regulate from that place. Yeah, because in Bonnie's inner community work, it's not just that there's, well, there are parts of you, but your parents are also parts of you living inside. Yeah, you. exactly. Yes. Right? Thank so you for saying that. Yeah, It's not the part of you that something, something in childhood, it's, oh no, this part of my mom lives inside of me. So I'm going to acknowledge my mom. And let me get on a tangent here because I really like how Bonnie's, um, it feels so rooted in relational neuroscience that we never just have a part of ourself that is not in relationship with another. Mm. So her work on inner community model is so incredible because it's the dyads that live within ourselves. So my inner mother is connected to an inner part of my child, mm-hmm. of me. And the part of my mom that got angry is connected to a different part of of me. And so I think that um, we get to be with both. Like yes. both, and we can't talk too much in depth today about it, but both ends of the dyad need healing within my inner community. Yeah. So the inner mother and that inner child. Yeah, I'm thinking about the example that I gave with this client yelling, I actually can't think of a specific attachment figure that would just like be quiet and not say anything. But I, I'd be curious what you think about this because you've done a little bit more work in the inner community part stuff with Bonnie. When my dad would get angry, and in fact, when my granddad, if he raised his voice or got angry, everybody silences. So I'm like, oh, I'm connecting to like a family part. Like I can't identify one person. It's just that like every single person that's in the room when one of these two male figures in my family would get loud or angry, you just have to be silent. And I mean, that still shows up in my adult. And that happened just in May. My dad was upset about something and like there's four of us in the room and we're all just dead silent. Wow. Yeah. I'm just taking in what you're saying. Yeah. That's so, um, I'd be so curious what Bonnie would say about that. And when I think of the, the cultural, like the family cultural parts, Mm -hmm. um, or like generational messaging and, um, it has to be both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what I hold with Bonnie and I mean, through IPMB is that the, the, naturally you're going to have some parts that show up to protect you. Mm -hmm. So if a client is yelling or they're canceling or they can't be attuned or or whatever the other reasons that show up where we think somehow like we're being a bad therapist or um, clients don't like us, I I just have to take a step back and go, oh, this is just protective strategies. They're just protecting themselves. It could be that I've sent some kind of cue of danger and I need to look at that for me or based on their trauma history, they're perceiving things in a way that would um, make them believe they're in danger. So this is showing up. Yeah. Even just as you're talking, I'm noticing how this is so typical at the end of all of our episodes. We're just much more relaxed now as we're talking because it really is that offering. Clients are offering us information from a mindful perspective when we're quite integrated and present um, we can be curious about all of it and then we can also accept that we won't fully know this is where i think consultation is so powerful mm-hmm. so to get someone else's eyes 
on the relationship between you and your client Mm -hmm. um, is always going to be, I think it's imperative. Um, And I think it's Anais Nin who says, we see things the way that we are, not as they are, but the way that we are. Um, So we need mentoring and elders in the community that can help us um, see things more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So we just ask, you know, over the next week or so, if you can start to pinpoint times that you have felt like you've taken it personally, or if it's showing up, you know, in the next one or two weeks where you're like, oh, this is what they were talking about. Um, Can you begin to connect with, you know, is this tight jaw reminding me of my father? Can I just say, hey, dad, I know you're there. Acknowledge it. And also having some compassion for your clients. Oh, they're just, they're feeling like they need to be protected right now. Thanks for being with us. 